Tonight, as Paul has so wonderfully said, we reach the end of our sermon series on The Chosen. I hope you've been able to watch the first season. Personally, this series has been refreshing, and it has helped me to reconnect with the Gospels and especially with Jesus in ways that I had not expected. I've been reminded of the Savior and the Lord of my heart who first appealed to me through religious practice, then through His Word, then through discipleship, and the ongoing call to take courage and to follow Him wherever He leads. He meets each of us along our journey, and I pray that tonight is no different. He invites us to meet Him, to see Him, to believe Him, and to follow Him. My name is Brian Fitzgerald, if you must know. I am an ordained deacon serving as a chaplain in an Austin hospital, and I imagine due to the people and situations that I have witnessed in my ministry career that I will bring a unique perspective to the series. I followed Tom's sermons, and I must add that it was a little overwhelming when Thomas graciously invited me to preach on this last installment. And during our time together over these last weeks, we've watched a variety of people respond to Jesus, some with life-changing results. Jesus met people where they were and created opportunities for them to follow him. And those who first accompanied him invited others in a very clear and direct way, come and see. Two people will be our focus this evening, two people who are very different from each other, but who encounter the same Jesus in a very different way and with very different outcomes. Nicodemus and a Samaritan woman at a well. The scripture patches passage that I offer for ours this evening, for ours, comes from John's Gospel in chapter 3. This is the crisis we're in. God light streamed into the world, but men and women everywhere ran for the darkness. They went for the darkness because they were not really interested in pleasing God. Everyone who makes a practice of doing evil, addicted to denial and illusion, hates God light and won't even come near it, fearing a painful exposure. But anyone working and living in truth and reality welcomes God light so the work can be seen for the God work that it is. Eugene Peterson has a wonderful way of translating. And did you catch that? This is the crisis we're in. We are certainly familiar with crisis. Nearly three years of pandemic uncertainty, conflicts over political ideas, conspiracies, and threats of violence, and now Russia attempting to, to dematerialize and terrorize the Ukrainians. Our fears and our stress, for some of us, may be at an all-time high. And we may have even reached a level of what we call traumatization. I know that I have. For three years, medical professionals and healers of all kinds have been under the burden of what medical community calls a marathon of crisis. What a marathon of crisis affects is how one sees the world around them and their place and their purpose in it. When, you're, when you've seen too much suffering or when you've swallowed enough tears just to keep moving and after you found yourself coping by withdrawing and stuck in the muck without an end in sight, then you're probably in the throes of a marathon of crisis. If that sounds like you, then tonight 
Jesus sees you. He's looking for you. He wants you to know that He is here. He can speak to your heart and lift you out, call your name, and restore your joy. Let us pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts who are present here be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I met Jesus when I was 17 years old, and I've been on an unexpected adventure ever since. When I was young, I was curious about God and drawn to holy things. I went to Catholic school, and until I was 15, I heard about Jesus a lot. I learned about God and what the Catholic Church believes, what the Hebrew Scripture tried to say, and what Jesus ultimately did say, and how he lived his life. I learned back then that Jesus' crucifixion and death was what happens when God enters the world. Left to our own devices, each of us would push God out of our worlds because we'd rather live, as the Scripture says, in darkness than be changed by God's powerful and penetrating light. One might ask what a young teenager would know about darkness and forcing God out of his world. But I did know a little something about that. In fact, meeting Jesus made for a crisis. I had always feared just real blatant honesty. I feared being found out. So going to confession increased my stress of being seen by God. I just wanted to fly under the radar. I didn't want to know that being a victim of a wrong made me irreparable or less valued, made me broken and possibly more vulnerable to additional pain. I didn't want to find out my con- that I was condemned. I didn't want to know about my common condemnation, especially if I was ultimately the one sinning against another person. I heard that God was forgiving, but as one who felt alone and far from innocent, I believed that I was unlovable and invisible to God. Whatever solution the church would provide for me just wouldn't work. It couldn't work for me. But When I met Jesus, when I kneeled under the painful exposure of God's light, my life changed. I believe that at every point in our lives, we are on the way to meeting Jesus, walking with Jesus, or following Jesus. It's not once and we're done. Jesus, much like the grace he provides us, prepares us and invites us to go ever deeper in our efforts to live transformed lives and to be fully yielded to His Spirit. It takes faith to begin the journey, and it asks for courage, sacrifice, and suffering to stay the course. And when when Nicodemus met Jesus, he struggled. He struggled too. Now, he slumped into a crisis of his own. He realized that leaving his life was not going to be easy, not the life he knew. Too many entanglements, too much to lose. To Nicodemus, the Torah, as to many observant Jews, was a wellspring of life. So studying the Torah called for hard labor and devotion. And if the door into the mysteries were to be opened, and if God were to reveal himself, he would do so from out of the living water flowing beneath the surface of the text. While discerning between the water of the Torah and the spirit of the law, Nicodemus reaches his dilemma. 
And as this clip will show, Nicodemus is trying to figure out what having faith might look like. Can you believe and hold on to what is familiar, comforting, and still follow Jesus? That's the way Shabbat was meant to be. Family. Knit together around the table. My mother's gilded plates. Your grandmother's candlesticks. May she rest in peace. I don't miss her. And if she could see you now. Receiving the highest honor ever bestowed by our order. She would burst with pride. I remember the inscription she had over the doorway of her room. Adonai El Roy. The Lord, the, the God, God who, who sees, sees me. The words of Hagar. She always loved that Hagar was caught up in something complicated and fraught, but not of her choice. And yet, God saw her. And he knew that the path she was forced to take would not be an easy one. When we stumble onto hard roads, he finds us and comforts us. Or does he call us to him? Adonai Elroy, the Lord the God who sees me. Like Hagar, Nicodemus sees himself caught up in something, as he says, complicated and fraught, but not of his own choice. You may remember the truth Jacob spoke in the beginning of this episode, that the invisible God without a temple chose us. We did not choose him. God saw Hagar hiding beside a well and knew the hardship she would face. God heard her cries God saved her life. He gave her a promise, the promise of a child and prosperity. In that moment, a well became a revelation, a place where God's presence was real. Grateful and astounded, Hagar embraced the impossibility that she saw God, was seen by God, and lived. Perhaps Jesus was hoping that Nicodemus would see God with thirst, not only for the waters of Torah, but also for the Spirit, and walk alongside him into a new covenant. The heart trouble Nicodemus feels may resemble our own reluctance to change course directions in our journey, to answer Jesus' call to be his disciple. Maybe Nicodemus, like us, is at risk of losing that childlike wonder and of walking away from the one person who truly sees us. My dad put his tiny Gideon army issue New Testament in my dresser where it stayed until I pulled it out on my 16th birthday. I didn't understand much of it really, I tried reading it, but I thought the Psalms were expressive and dramatic, kind of like I was as a teenager. One night I came across Psalm 32 at verse 8 where it read, I will instruct you and teach you the way you should go. I will counsel you with mine eye upon you. And I paused. Does he see me? Is, is he looking for me? What, what does he mean by instruct me? It felt very personal 
and surreal. It felt like a promise, really, and I bought my first Bible shortly after that and began listening to Christian radio. I was especially drawn to Protestant preaching. I returned to church regularly and placed myself in a space where I could possibly hear what God desired of me. And I was alone in this process. Choosing to be in the God light and risking being seen was scary. And it kept me from connecting with others, including my parents. I was impacted by the trials of my youth, weighted down by a darkness that wanted my soul and wanted to spoil my spirit. The only thing that seemed to help was the Bible. So I can understand Nicodemus's connection to the Scripture and his reluctance to entertain mysteries from time to time. Now, Jesus leaves Judean countryside for Galilee. Now, John's gospel records that in order to get there, he had to pass through Samaria. All right. And as the series so humorously highlighted, the disciples knew there was another way, perhaps uh, through the Decapolis, to avoid treading on that Samaritan soil. You don't want to be caught dead in that part of town. Safety was a priority if your king was to stay alive to take the throne of David, right? So a faithful Hebrew would remember their profaning of the temple and turning to fight against the children of Abraham. And like a grudge, they would best leave them to their plight and never speak to them again. Little do they know. Jesus is about to meet someone the Father has been seeking, a woman whose broken heart and heavy burdens have been seen and heard by the Lord, the God who sees me. The Gospel of John uh, spares no expense in setting the stage for Jesus' encounter with this nameless woman. On Jacob's deathbed, there's a little backstory, Jacob left his land to Joseph, including Shechem, where the well Jesus was about to hang out at is located. Now, before it belonged to Jacob, it was his father Isaac who first dug the spring, and it was there that Isaac's servants came running to report that, hey, we've struck water. It was near this well in Beersheba, which has been named Well of Oath or Well of Seven, that Isaac heard God's promise. I am the, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Don't fear a thing because I am with you. Besides being a water source for a community, wells were a spot for social gathering. Travelers would see them as travel markers, and they stopped to learn about the region, to rest, to water their camels, or to even find a spouse. And in fact, to consider wells as places of betrothal is a long-standing Hebrew tradition given that Jacob met Rachel at a well, Isaac met Rebekah at a well, and even Moses met his wife Zipporah at a well. So, Jesus is taking a big risk here. He's taking a rest and sitting down at a well, awaiting the arrival of an unaccompanied Samaritan woman. It had all the distinguishing marks of being suspect to an observant Jew. And despite these barriers and at the risk of being seen, Jesus sits down at the well because that's what he sees the Father doing. So, what is conversion. Jesus and Nicodemus agreed that it wasn't the common view of Gentile becoming a Jew or a Christian changing from Catholic to Methodist. It's a heart thing. It's about having a life-changing conversation with God, 
my well, the place where God waited for me, was my backyard. On another lonely, restless night of thought, an unexpected presence pulled me to come and see. And I waited in fear, but eventually walked outside and into the backyard. The ground seemed different, holy even. I didn't even look up. I kept my head down. Then I heard a tender invitation, come closer. I remember thinking, I can't. My legs can't move, they wouldn't move, and my heart was heavy, rendering me pretty still. I, I thought to myself, is, is he speaking to me? All the reasons why I shouldn't be there started to rush in. It felt dangerous being outside at 2 a.m. in the morning. I couldn't hear anything else but my own heart beating. What am I really doing here? What's happening? Then came the offering. I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. You can be free. Do you want to be free? Yes, I thought to myself. I want to be free, but I, I don't know how. I, I can't see a different life. I'm not ready to give up my aspirations to let go of the person I think I am. Then I hear my spirit. Trust me. I see you. I will watch over you. Follow me. I fell to my knees, bent down toward the wet grass and clutched the blades, repeating, set me free, I want to be free. I trust you. I don't share that to diminish anyone else's journey or to compare myself to the story we are about to hear. The ingredients I identified in my conversion resonate with the Samaritan woman's life-changing experience. And at first, she's distrusting of religious people and institutions like so many of us. So many rules, so many barriers. She knows exclusion all too well. She's cynical by now and finds it hard to trust others. But when she is exposed to the God light through Jesus' offering of living water, she doesn't run away but comes closer to him. Jesus sees something. We so often miss. In my ministry among the anxious, the helpless, and the inflicted, the broken, and dying, so many of us are prone to judge them out there outside and not see the person that is inside. I hear, I don't deal with crazy, or I can't deal with hurt. Jesus speaks to every heart in whatever space they fill, and no person is beyond God's reach. I trust that God sees more than anxiety or helplessness. He sees a child of God, worthy of dignity and of irreplaceable value. And although barriers tried to keep the Samaritan woman away from God, God himself came to break down her walls and set her free to worship. Why else would God provide Jacob a well? Bring him to Egypt for protection and prosperity. Give the land to his son Joseph. Settle a people around it so that a Samaritan woman could meet him. I'd still like a drink of water if you can spare it. Amazing what a parched throat will do. Aren't I unclean to you? Won't you be defiled by this vessel? 
Maybe some of my people say that about your women, but I don't. Yeah? And what do you say? I say if you knew who I am, you'd be asking me for a drink. Really? And I would give you living water. Wood. Except that you have nothing to draw water with, and this is a deep well. Besides, what do you need from me if you have your own supply of living water? Long story. But Jewish water is better than Samaritan water, hmm? That's not what I said. Are you a better man than our ancestor Jacob, who dug this well? Your water is better than his? I know, Jacob. And everyone who drinks this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. Wouldn't that be nice? The water I give will become in a person a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Really? Yes, really. Prove it. First, go and call your husband, then come back. I will show you both. I don't have a husband. You are right. You've had five husbands. And the man you're living with now is not your husband. <laughs> oh, I see. You're a prophet. You're here to preach at me. No. Usually the one good thing about coming here alone is I can escape being condemned. I'm not here to condemn you. I've made mistakes. Too many. But it's men like you who have made it impossible for me to do anything about it. How? Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews insist Jerusalem is the only place for true worship. They say that because the temple is there. Yeah. Exactly where we're not allowed. I'm here to break those barriers. And the time is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. So, where am I supposed to go when I need God? I've never received anything from God, but I couldn't thank him, even if I did. Anywhere. God is spirit. And the time is coming and is now here. That it won't matter where you worship, but only that you do it in spirit and truth. Heart and mind, that, that is the kind of worshiper he's looking for. It won't matter where you're from or what you've done. You can see her defenses dropping, her vulnerability shining through. He's convincing, but she's not responding. It's hard to hear grace when it happens and even harder to believe. I remember being asked to pray with an ex-gang member who felt condemned to a life sentence of fear and unworthiness. And in fact, when we met, his anxiety was through the roof just from being around me. Uh, he talked about being oppressed and written off. He knew that he committed crimes that caused demonic visions and feelings of dread and death. He admitted that he knew of Jesus, that he died for us, but that he also felt millions of miles away from anything close to true freedom and real truth. He thirsted for what Jesus offers, no condemnation, proof that he was not beyond hope, and hoping God would see his true self. He wanted to be seen as God sees him. He was ready to hear what Jesus had to say. He was ready to come under the God light, and we prayed. 
for cleansing from fear and hopelessness by the living water and for the grace that brought him to that moment to complete its perfect work. Sitting with him as he sat beside his well, he met Jesus. Will the Samaritan woman believe like my friend did? Do you believe what I'm telling you? <laughs> Until the Messiah comes and explains everything and sorts this mess out, including me, I don't trust in anyone. You're wrong when you say that you've never received anything from God. This Messiah you speak of, I am he. The first one was named Ramin. You were a woman of purity who was excited to be married. But he wasn't a good man. He hurt you. And it made you question marriage and even the practice of your faith. Stop it. The second was Farzad. On your wedding night, his skin smelled like oranges. And to this day, every time you pass by the oranges in the market, you feel guilty for leaving him because he was the only truly godly man you've been with. But you felt unworthy. Why are you doing this? I have not revealed myself to the public as the Messiah. You are the first. It would be good if you believed me. It's the wrong person. I came to Samaria just to meet you. <laughs> Do you think it's an accident that I'm, I'm here in the middle of the day? I am rejected by others. I know. But not by the Messiah. <sighs> and you know these things... Because you are the Christ. I'm going to tell everyone. I was counting on it. <laughs> Spirit and truth. Spirit and truth. It won't be all about mountains or temples. Soon. Just the heart. You promise. I promise. Everything I've done. Oh, he must be the Christ. <laughs> Dropping her burdens ever so slowly as he recites what he knows about her. Soon they're face to face. Soon. Just the heart? You promise? I promise. It still amazes me how many adventures I've been on with Jesus and my faith journey. I've seen many faces light up like hers when Jesus breathes into their heart, when they're hurting, let go of their burdens and are set free. What keeps surprising me in the conclusion of the episode is how intentional Jesus was in choosing her. To be the first person he told, I am he. 
You don't have to wait any longer or look any further. I am the Messiah, the Christ. And again, isn't that what he asked each of us who come alongside him in the journey? Who do you say that I am, he asked us. And when we profess, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, perhaps we too will run and tell others. Even we can lead others to life-giving waters. It's not about us. It's about Him, the Lord, the God who sees us. God will make good on His promise. As Jesus said to Nicodemus, God didn't go to all the trouble of sending His Son merely to point an accusing finger, telling the world how bad it is. He came to help. To put it right again. He came for you and for me. Allow yourself to be in a place near the well of divine revelation and rest for a while. Jesus is waiting for you there. I am the God of Abraham, your father. Don't fear a thing because I'm with you. He will see us through the marathon of crisis. He wants us to know that he's here in the midst of us. He can speak to our hearts and lift us out. Call our names and restore joy. It will be the beginning of our healing and a call to follow him on this extraordinary and unexpected adventure. Are you ready? Let us pray. God, we thank you for the impact of your word in our lives, your uncanny ability to find us in our hiding places that we sit along these places of well water that are still and unmoving. And yet your spirit troubles the water and we become fresh and new again. We thank you that we've heard Jesus' voice and we've seen the people he has changed. And may you give us eyes to see those who are ready to have their eyes opened as well. And if there's any burdens or barriers between us and your will in our life, we pray that you would clear the path so that we would be unmistakably yours, ready and willing, walking completely in your light. And we give you thanks and praise for this and so much more. In Christ's name, amen.